Hey there, thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. We're continuing through the book of 1 Peter. I invite you to turn in whatever form of the Bible you've got there to 1 Peter 3. We're taking this next section. It's a little bit longer section, and so I'm going to break it into three basic chunks. And I'll read each chunk out loud when we get to them, and I won't get you PowerPoint weariness. So I haven't put all of those scriptures up there, but I'll let you read along with me when we get to those. To introduce that, though, let me talk about something that occurred to me a few years ago, one fall Saturday afternoon. It was one of these nice sunny days, not quite like the one we had yesterday. And uh, I guess something overcame me. It was the overwhelming sense of wanting to do good for somebody because I saw my next door neighbor at the time where we lived who had been telling me that she was going to have somebody come and cut down a maple tree that was starting to grow where she didn't want it to grow. I know in Michigan, none of you ever experienced that with those helicopter seeds that land in the middle of shrubbery, etc. And she was going to have that one removed. But I had a little electric chainsaw that was pretty mighty for an electric. And I had enough cord. And so this thing swept over me. And I went next door and said, Midge, you don't have to pay somebody to do that. This is a small job. Would you like for me to just cut that down? I've been doing a little cleanup in my yard. I'd be happy to do that for you. She goes, oh, would you do that? That'd be great. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind. And I said, happy to do it. So I got all my cord. It was like 200 feet of cord. I got it out there. And I worked for about an hour. I got most of it cut out to where I could actually cut the bottom off. And I got all within about 10 minutes of effort to be able to fell that tree. And I was so proud of myself. (laughs) And the chain came off of my saw. And some of you who have experienced that know that sometimes the fix can take longer than the job. And I was walking toward my garage, muttering to myself, some good deeds just don't go unpunished. And that was not any kind of major grief. I was able to get it fixed. No big deal. But there is that sense sometimes that sometimes we get punished for doing good. Now that was obviously mild comparatively. But some of you have experienced some grief thrown at you for doing good, doing the right thing. Maybe you worked really hard on the job and some people said, hey, quit working so hard. You're making the rest of us look bad. (laughs) Or maybe somebody got upset at you and so they made something up and said something behind your back that really wasn't true, but they're just trying to kind of gouge you a little bit. Or maybe you've experienced people just sort of throwing shade your way simply because it's guilt by association and you fit in better with this group than with this other group. It happens. People are people wherever we go. So anyway, I just wanted us to pay attention to look at some of the things that have been happening on the job and realize that sometimes it's easy to want to retaliate and to fight fire with fire. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And Peter is echoing words that we've seen from Jesus back in the Beatitudes and back in his Sermon on the Mount that says, no, no, we're supposed to repay evil with blessing. That's that first chunk that we'll read together. And then that second chunk is basically wrapped up in this statement. Don't fear poor treatment. 
Remember, he's writing to some people who are starting to really feel the heat from persecution, so they were getting some poor treatment. Most of us in America, the poor treatment we receive doesn't hold a candle to what they were receiving, but it still hurts when we're on the receiving end of poor treatment. He says, don't fear it. In fact, he would say, expect it. And he would even go beyond that and say, prepare for it, so that when it does happen, you'll know how to respond. And then thirdly, the last chunk, follow Christ because he is your example. Do you hear how he keeps bringing back that theme throughout his writings? I heard it in some of the men's uh, talks that they gave while I was gone on my sabbatical, and we see it coming through again. It's a real common theme for Peter. Christ is our example. Keep following his example about how to respond in times of persecution. Repay evil with blessing rather than repaying evil with evil. Let me read this out loud. You can follow along. Verses 8 through 12 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Finally, he says, because he's wrapping up this section of his letter, all of you, meaning all of you believers, this was probably being read out loud, kind of like what I'm doing now, but it would be read out loud to different gatherings in different situations. Be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called. I actually put that in bold because that stood out to me. You're actually called to endure this kind of grief. You're called to this. This is part of your calling. So that you may inherit a blessing. Four, and then he quotes from Psalm 34. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Isn't that nice poetry? You can see the senses being involved here. It sounds like poetry because it is. It's from the Psalms. He says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and you can just picture that, that whenever you're doing something, if you're doing it as unto the Lord, even if you're receiving some persecution at the time, he sees you, he's got your back, and his ears are attentive to your prayers. He'll hear you. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's good to know. Does that sound a little bit familiar? It should, because it really does echo what Jesus was telling us in Matthew 5. In fact, he says, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, we can all say, Oh, that's no big deal. That's so easy, right? And I, as I mentioned before, not easy at all. It's extremely difficult, especially when we're on the receiving end of some form of grief or another. If we're the ones being persecuted, very difficult. Now, I've mentioned this young lady before, and I looked her up again because I was brought back into her story as I was reading a different article. She is showing up from time to time, and I realized that she is only about two months older than my oldest daughter. And so I was putting this in context realizing when she actually left the Westboro Baptist Church back in 2012. And she was five years old in the Westboro Baptist Church, known for its picketing and sort of hateful approach to trying to condemn everybody who wasn't exactly like them. She started picketing at age five because, as I started reading her bio, her grandfather was the founder of the Westboro Baptist Church. So she was brought up, taught to be able to hold picket signs that said, 
you are God's enemy. Because they were trying to use the, the shock tactics by saying that you're an enemy of God if you haven't repented and turned to him, so you need to turn or burn. It was that kind of message for them. Really pretty hardcore. And she said, 20 years after I first started picketing, I left the Westboro Baptist Church, knowing that I would leave everything that I had known that had been my support system, including for her now, I realize, her own family. I'm sure that her family probably thought, oh, she's gone to us. She's lost to us. She can't even possibly be my, our own daughter again. So that means she was only 25 years old when she left. Fortunately, she had a sister who also left, so she had some camaraderie there. But they entered a world of people who had a lot of opinions about the Westboro Baptist Church. And so, Megan Phelps Roper started a, a new mission in life. And if you haven't seen her TED Talk, you need to. Look it up. Megan Phelps Roper TED Talks. Just search for it. It's incredible. Because she's talking about how she started to learn to become engaged in conversation with people who are ideologically very different than where she was. And the reason she knew that is because people who were doing exactly like what Peter is telling us we ought to do, were reaching out to her through social media. Some of the people that she was even picketing were being very gracious and compassionate toward her. They were winsome. They were loving. They weren't hateful. They weren't returning hate for hate. They were returning a blessing for the stuff she was spewing out in her picket signs and in the things that they were saying in public. I'm here to tell you, folks, that this is a revolutionary concept because when somebody like this young lady like Megan, can get pulled out of that situation because of the compassion being shown to them, it can change radically people's mindsets and draw them from darkness into light. Because what she was a part of was really one of those kinds of groups that I have a feeling Jesus is going to say one day, you never knew me. They'll say, we did all these things in your name. And they'll say, yeah, but you never knew me. You really didn't reflect my character and my glory to the people around you. And so Megan is now... A woman with a mission. And the very things that she's talking about echo what Peter is telling us that we can behave like. The concept of returning good for evil is just revolutionary. I watched it as I was growing up because my mom and dad did a good job for that. And I'm grateful for it. I would watch my dad. He used to walk up to the store about a quarter mile away sometimes because he just needed exercise. He said, I sit too often anyway. I need, the, I need to stretch my legs. And there were some younger people on our block who used to kind of tease him a little bit because he was just a walker. And they said, hey, old man, you just didn't get your car today. And, you know, just kind of throwing him some shade and whatnot. And dad would always hold his head high. He would be kind and, and generous in his well wishes to people. And he never let anything get under his skin that way. And I watched him do that year after year after year. And I thought, my dad got it. My dad put this passage Simon Peter's words to heart, and he was living that stuff out. I later found out that one of the guys on the corner whose teenage son was kind of a rascal, he told me later, your dad is one of the finest examples of a Christian man that I've ever seen. I didn't even know this guy. I didn't even know that he noticed my dad. But for him to say that showed me that dad's actions were speaking louder even than words sometimes. So where do we practice this revolutionary concept? It's almost like Peter is hearing these questions as he's writing. You know, I'm telling you that sometimes when people would write, they would actually have people there with them, a secretary or an amanuensis, and they would actually ask them questions. They would be talking it out. Or it may be that he was just thinking about his audience, like I do as I'm preparing for Sunday. And I'm thinking, you know, I bet somebody 
is going to be having this question when I get to this point. And it was like Peter did that. And he goes, somebody's going to say, yeah, but that's hard. Where do we practice that? And so he says, with other believers. That's where he goes right into a practical thing. He says, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Where do you do that? In church. You do it with other believers so that you together can chip off the rough edges and learn how to forgive the little offenses. Because if we can't do it here, how are we going to stand firm when it's really coming on strong and we're feeling the heat out in the world? This is where we get to practice it. I use my friend Greg. I went through a difficult time with Greg. I was still in college. I thought I knew a whole lot more than I knew. And I was going to college and part-time hand waver music director in a small church in South Phoenix. Greg was my pastor back then. Greg, uh, his middle name was Take It to the Limit. That was everybody's nickname for him. Greg had come to faith much later in life. And I think the Holy Spirit was still working on him because he had a few rough edges. to. Well, he had a lot of rough edges to chip off. But Greg was kind of a micromanager, and he was just a steamroller. I mean, you couldn't really have a conversation with Greg. It was always, you just listened, and he told you, and then you went and did it. That was kind of the way things were with him. So when I started really feeling a sense of calling to go to seminary, that meant I was going to have to move from Arizona and leave that job after I'd finished college and move to another state so I could go get my master's degree. And I mentioned that and told that to Greg, and he said, no, you can't do that. And I thought, what? You're joking, right? He goes, no. You made a commitment to me. You need to stick this thing out and have two years. I want two years from you in this church. And he was serious. He went so far as to say, I'm going to write a strongly worded letter to the seminary, and I'm going to tell them you shouldn't accept this guy because he reneged on his word to me that he was going to stay for two years. I thought, wow, that seemed a little harsh. And so I talked to the seminary. They accepted me. They, didn't ever, they didn't, never said a word about this pastor writing to them. I don't know if he did or not. But that was kind of the way I left things with Greg. And I thought, yikes, I'm sorry I disappointed you, Greg, but you know, I, I feel a sense of calling here. And most pastors would have said, I'm really happy that God has taken you to this next step. A few years later, Greg got back in touch with us again. He had been a missionary in the northwestern part of the United States. He had been involved in a motorcycle accident. It was pretty serious, and he grew out of that accident a different guy. He had time to contemplate. He had feedback provided to him by different people that he had known, and he asked for my forgiveness. And he and I started corresponding together. God has a real great sense of humor because when God wants to do something powerful as a witness to say this is something only God can do, he'll do it. Because when I started a new church with the help of a team of people in Phoenix after I had served in Ann Arbor for a while, I went as a church planter back to Phoenix. After I'd done that for a while, we needed to call a pastor because I was just a church planter. And guess who God decided to have us call as pastor to that new church? Greg Gearing. The same guy who told me he was going to write a letter so that the seminary shouldn't accept me. And we're still friends to this day. We correspond. His son is a missionary in Ireland over in Limerick. And uh, it's just really neat to see the paths that his boys have gone and I think, you know, that's a long-term miracle. And it was something that at the time I never would have thought possible because I thought, I don't think Greg is ever going to be softened. But God softened him. And I had to learn a few things too because I had to learn to be able to stand on my own two feet and to speak up and to say, well, I politely disagree. I, I see where you're coming from, but we need to talk this out. So anyway, that was my example of something 
that happens that reflects that this really is a revolutionary concept and it works when people live out returning good instead of evil. And then Peter says, don't fear poor treatment. Starting in verse 13, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? In a sense, he's saying, okay, most people wouldn't want to harm you, although they probably will sometimes. So it's like most of the time, if you're returning good for evil, people are not going to want to harm you. But even if you should suffer for what's right, you're still blessed. Don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always, this is one of my life's verse, verses, by the way. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. What does that question presuppose, that statement? That you have hope in your life. That you're living it out in such a way that people are going to want to ask you. Why? Because we're peculiar people. That's what started this whole series in his letter is that we're supposed to be peculiar knowing that we are God's chosen possessions and as such we're going to look very different from a lot of the people around us in the world. So do this with gentleness and respect. He doesn't say beat them over the head with a family Bible. He says treat them with gentleness and respect and answer them but do so in a way that's continuing to show that kind of grace and compassion. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Or it's better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I remember reading this a few years ago about a soldier. There was a soldier who, as you understand, there are certain things that are expected of you as a young soldier. And they'll have these inspections. And when they inspect your bunk, I mean, they've got a be able to bounce that penny right off the top of your sheet. It's got to be really firm. All that stuff has to be true. Your shoes have to be polished. Well, there was a young soldier who was a Christian. And he said, you know, I, it's going to be tough around some of these fellows because they get a little bit rough <laughs> around the edges, but I have to live out my faith in front of the people that God's put me with. So he said, I'm going to make it a habit to go ahead and kneel by my bedside, by my cot, and say my nightly prayers before I crawl in bed because... God wouldn't want me to stop that if I'd begun that habit. So he did that on the very first night. He knelt down next to his cot, and he started having his nightly prayer time, his little quiet time. And another soldier there who'd been out on a hike and gotten his boots nice and muddy chucked one of the boots and hit him on the right side of his head. And the guy just grabbed the boot, put it carefully over to the side, and kept praying, waiting for the other shoe to drop, which it did. The other boot hit him on the other side of the head. And he just quietly got the boot, set it over his side, and kept praying. And he finished his quiet time. The next morning, when this soldier that had chucked his boots at this guy woke up, next to his bedside were his boots cleaned and polished. And he felt so badly about it that he actually confessed and said, man, I'm sorry. I, forgive me for doing that. I don't know what got into me. What makes you so committed to do this anyway? He started asking questions. And this guy answered with gentleness and respect. And a good lengthy conversation for weeks took place during boot camp. That soldier became a Christian because of this other guy who did exactly what Simon Peter is saying that we can do. He said, have a ready answer so that when people ask you for that hope that you display, you can tell them, but make sure you're doing it with gentleness and respect. He got the boot, but he didn't get it the way we thought. He says, it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, what happened? What would have happened had that Christian soldier, onward 
Christian soldier. What would have happened if that Christian soldier had gotten the boot and decided, I've had it, I've had it up to here, that's enough, and started throwing the boot back at him and gotten into a brawl or something? Do you think it would have had the same effect? I don't think so. And I know that all of us have had times when we think, oh, I've lost it. I shouldn't have said that in the same tone that I said, or I shouldn't have retaliated the way I did it. I need to check myself. But this guy didn't. He did the right thing. But God says, yeah, we can suffer, but sometimes we'll bring the suffering on ourselves. Peter is saying this, not God. God's saying it through Peter, so I guess it's God saying it. But he says, it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So whatever suffering this young soldier got, it was for doing the right thing, not for retaliating. So does this concept come naturally? No. That's why we need so much practice. Remember who Peter was talking with. These were people who were really getting some slander from other people around them. People were calling them cannibals, some of them. In the earlier writings, you can see that they're like, why would they do that? Well, for one thing, Jesus had been quoted as saying, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. And he would say, this is my blood, drink ye all of it. So some of it might have been facetious, but some of it might have been real. There were some crazy things being said about Christians. Some of them said that they were kind of living in communes only because they were sharing things that, that they had in common so that those who were in need wouldn't have to go hungry. And so people were just throwing all kinds of shade at Christians. Does that sound a little bit like today, maybe? It's becoming a little more increasingly difficult, I think, to live as a Christian, an open, professing Christian in this world where some people have an idea of what they think Christianity must look like. And that's what it was like back then. I think that probably it's good for us to understand that we're still living in the same kind of age and that the concepts haven't changed. So whatever Peter's writing to, even though he's writing to people 2,000 years ago, this affects us. It affects us today. Now, a couple of things that come up that let me know that I still have that tendency. Like when I was at Kroger the other day. Uh, I was going to go to one of these self-scan units because now they're popping up more and more, as you know. They want us to do all the work. And so I thought, I only have, you know, six items, so I can do the self-scan thing. I think I can handle it. Technology is a little bit beyond us old guys, but I'll do it. And so I saw about four other people standing in what I thought was the line to go into this section. And so I got in what I thought was the line, stood behind this one person. And I waited until dutifully until that person actually went in to find the next open space. So then when the next space opened up, I started to walk toward it. And some guy tapped me on the shoulder and he goes, uh, hey, Bubba, there's a whole line of people right around the corner there. And I looked around down the, the frozen vegetable aisle and there were six other people. They had formed another line down there. Well, of course, I started a food fight. <laughs> no, I didn't. I'm just kidding. I didn't. But I felt this embarrassment because I'd done something wrong. And I said, ooh, I'm sorry. And I said it loud enough so they could all hear that. And I said, I didn't see that. I, thanks for pointing that out. And so I walked around and got in the line thinking that I had been in the line. But even though it was a slight offense and it really wasn't that big a deal, I still had that fight or flight experience because I was embarrassed in public. And I realized how quickly we can just kind of get into that, I'm going to, hey, let's, you're going to have to deal with me about this one because that's our nature. And it revealed to me how quickly we can dive into that. And that's the kind of thing that I think God is trying to 
adjust in our spirits so that we have the fruit of the Spirit of gentleness and long-suffering and patience and kindness and goodness. These things that should start growing naturally out of our walk with the Lord, but tend not to because of our fleshly nature. Follow Christ, your example. This is almost what he continues to come back to as his stamp of approval to say, you'll know you're doing it right when you're doing what Christ did for us. If you could do that, then you know you're on the right path. Verses 18 through 22, let's read those together too. For Christ also suffered once for sins, meaning that he doesn't have to do it again and again because he was the final word. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. That's the big purpose for what he did it, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And then this next couple of verses are ones that I'm going to explain because they get a little strange. And we look at them and go, what? After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Okay. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wanted to make sure that we knew that it's not the baptism that saves us, but Christ's resurrection that saves us. And baptism is simply an outward sign of that. Who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers all in submission to him. So, Let's pick that apart a little bit because there are some big questions about what did he mean about his spirit came alive and went. Some people would actually take this to mean, including one of the confessions that are read out loud in some liturgical churches, that Christ ascended to be in heaven, but he descended to hell or to Hades and preached to the people there. Now, I want to just cover this quickly with my own quick disclaimer to say, I do not believe that to be the case, and I'll explain why. Um, it's a very strange passage. There are a couple of interpretations. One is that they sort of take that at face value to say, okay, his spirit, because his body was in the tomb, so he had to be in spirit form, his spirit actually went into Hades and preached some sort of proclamation. It doesn't say what. To these spirits that were imprisoned there since the days of Noah. And they'll say, okay, well, that's kind of cool that he did that. Why do I not think that's true? Well, for a couple of good reasons. First of all, I don't believe that he ever descended into Hades. But what would he have preached? Some scholars, and I think very wrongly, would say, oh, he preached the gospel. Really? Yeah, but that would contradict a lot of other passages in the New Testament that says once we're dead, once we have no more ability to make a choice, there will be no second chance. There are some denominations or religious affiliations that would say you can actually pray for the dead And I think they hope that there will be another opportunity that they'll hear some truth and respond to it and they'll still get saved after they're dead. The Bible doesn't teach that. If you read carefully what the New Testament says, we've got as many chances as long as we have breath on this life to turn to Christ. Second, third, fourth, 15th, 500 chances as long as there's breath. But the minute our bodies are gone, that's it. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for the believer. There is no second chance afterwards. So that's one reason I don't think he went to hell, and I certainly don't think he preached the gospel. I would agree with other scholars that would be so strong as to say that's actually a heretical stance. 
Because if people start thinking that's okay, then they can light candles and pray to the people, uh, loved ones that have died before them, hoping that maybe there'll be a chance that they can get saved. Hebrews doesn't say that. It says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. It happens right away. And then another person that I read about, a fairly reputable commentator, said, oh, but he was probably just preaching a proclamation of victory that comes across as saying, you see, I won. I told you so. (laughs) That doesn't sound like the character of the Christ I know. He wouldn't do that. He doesn't have to. He's going to stand triumphant. All those authorities are in submission to him already. The one who's been exalted. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. He doesn't have to preach a proclamation. The fact that he arose and went to his father in heaven is proof enough. And that's exactly what this passage is actually meaning. The fact that God raised him from the dead and his spirit was able to ascend, not descend, but to ascend, means that he has conquered death once and for all. He's paid for the price of sin. And all those sermons that were preached even ages ago have been proven true in Christ and his resurrection. That's what this passage is saying. Some people wrongly try to use Paul's one little proof text out of Ephesians 4.9 because it said that he descended into the lowest parts of the earth. That never says Hades. People would say, well, it's a euphemism for Hades. No, it's not. He would have said Hades if he meant Hades. Paul was a guy who used words carefully. The lowest parts of the earth simply meant that he descended. First of all, he descended from heaven to come to earth. Then he was laid into the earth itself, which means the tomb. That simply means his body was laid to rest. Then he ascended again, which means he came alive again. So this has nothing to do with going to Hades. I want you to come out with some good doctrine from this because we need to know that. This is important stuff. And Peter gives it to us. Also, another reason why I think this is not true, because of what happened at Jesus' crucifixion with the thief on the cross. Remember one guy on the right, one guy on the left? Don't know which is which. But one of the fellows was taunting and mocking Jesus and saying, ah, if you're the king of the Jews, why don't you get yourself off of here? Why don't you do something? The other criminal hanging on the other side rebuked the first criminal and said, what are you talking about? This guy's done nothing to deserve this kind of punishment. We deserve it. We deserve what we're getting because we're guilty. But this guy hasn't done anything. And then he turned to Jesus and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember what Jesus said. In a few years after, no. He says, today you will be with me where? In paradise. That's right. He didn't say, after we've spent some time in Hades where I can go and preach to the God. No, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, that's Jesus' own words. So, where did Jesus not go? Right. You've got it. I'm proud of you. Good for you. His proclamation is his presence in heaven. That means that he is, in a sense, preaching by his mere being in heaven itself. So, here's what happens. Most of the commentaries, the amplified version, if you want to go look that up, They caught it better than all the other versions combined. There were believers back in the time of Noah. God's Spirit would have spoken to them because Noah was building this huge ship in a place, and they would have had questions about that. So God's Spirit was preaching through Noah to those people, and they rejected what he was telling them. And because of that, those same people who are in spirit form now because their bodies are dead have been imprisoned and continue in prison to this very day. And so that's validated, the fact that their rejection results in imprisonment. It's validated by the fact that Jesus did exactly what he claimed to do. His proclamation is his presence in heaven. 
And Peter wants to make sure that we know by talking about how those waters of the flood, people who were saved through the waters, that that was sort of a, a euphemism, an expression that would foreshadow what happens to those of us that pass through the waters of baptism. And he says it's not just to clean us up to get dirt off of us, but it's to show what happens through the Spirit, which is what saves us when God's Spirit inhabits our spirits. It's when we're immersed in Him, when we surrender to Him, when we repent and accept His grace, then we're baptized in the Spirit, and that's what saves us through Christ's resurrection. What he's about is what happens in the final verse there, verse 22. And because of that, we understand that we should expect to suffer for living as peculiar people and continue to do good even in the face of evil. We should know that it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, even though we're tempted to let that flesh out and retaliate. We know that when we do suffer well, wisely and well, and return good for evil, other people notice. Sometimes the people who will become convicted because we treated them nicely when they probably didn't deserve it. And they'll actually confess to us later and say, oh, I'm sorry I treated you that way. You should have a ready answer for when people ask about your differences. Why can you do that? Or what is it that you do each week? How come I never see you on Sunday mornings? Or when we answer, we should do so, how? With gentleness and respect. That we'll have a ready answer. We've prepared for it. We've been practicing with other believers so that when we do find ourselves in a situation where things are tough for us and we're feeling the heat of persecution in one form or another, we can respond with gentleness and respect. And we know that the same gospel is true today as it was even in Noah's day, and that those who reject Christ will be imprisoned forever. It's not annihilation. There won't be a time when they'll just disappear. They're going to be alive forever. And it's going to be awful for those who are apart from Christ. But for those who have continued to trust Christ, our eternal rewards are there. We'll be sharing in the inheritance forever. Those who suffer for Christ's sake will have their reward in heaven where Jesus reigns forever. Isn't that good to know? For me, it was good to know that we might not feel vindicated immediately when we feel wronged, but we can trust the one who is going to judge rightly someday. And that's okay. It helps us get through the temporary feeling of grief knowing that he's going to make things right. Let's pray together. Father, I've mentioned it before and I say it again how grateful I am that Simon Peter, a fellow who was really transformed by your spirit, has so much wisdom to share with fellow believers, including us, even today, and that it's so practical and so relevant. And because I see myself responding in so many ways to show me that the flesh is still at work in my life, I pray that you'll continue to chip off those rough edges, that you'll soften my heart, make me quickly attentive to your spirit, and that hopefully I will continue to respond, not in the flesh, but in the spirit, Christ's spirit, with gentleness and respect so that others, even if they say bad things about me, may eventually become convicted that they did so because they don't have any truth to back that up. And that perhaps they may notice the difference and ask good questions. And I pray that for all of us as believers, thanking you that, oh boy, you've given us a really good family of faith in which to learn how to behave this way with one another. Thank you for the many times people have forgiven me, especially even within the body of Christ. I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for forgiveness and grace, which you pour out so freely. Help us to learn how to pour out grace to one another and to be light where you've called us to walk in each of our days outside this building. 
And I pray it in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, 